0: Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and put them against each other inside the ring of death. Death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metabolic. This is Album Clash. Hello, and this is Album Clash. I am Tim. And I am Kev. And uh, yeah, how you been, Kev? Yeah,
1: can't complain. I mean, obviously, we are in the Rona times. We are in the third national lockdown. So obviously been out gallivanting, you know, going, going all the places. So it's, it's been dead exciting. Um, how about yourself?
0: Yeah, same. I mean, I've been traveling, to be honest with you, so uh, this afternoon I, uh, I I took a trip up the garden. Wow. I also assume that's not a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I literally just walked up to the top of my actual <laughs> garden. So this is our second clash. Uh, so thank you to anyone who listened to our first clash. Um, if this is the first time you've listened to the show, the concept is we take two albums which have some vague connection, we talk about them, we decide which one we like best. It's just two two mates talking about music they like. That's it, basically.
1: Yeah, there's, there's nothing more complicated than that. It's two fellas talking about al- al- either albums they really like or albums they don't like, and the reasons behind it and whatever other interesting tidbits that are related to either the musicians or the recording of the albums or what have you and generally slagging off people who do stupid things if you're expecting um in-depth analysis in-depth quality analysis then i'm sure there's a classic rock podcast that has your name on it if you're expecting something that is flimflam nonsense and whimsy then you're this is exactly in your wheelhouse
0: yeah, uh, quite right. So as we said last week, we're not journalists, we're not professional musicians, we just like listening to music and talking bollocks about it. So yeah, exactly that. So as it's our second show, I believe, Kevin, you have a new feature for us to talk about.
1: Yes, excitingly, I had a, a 10 minute think about about the show and decided we needed a new feature after all of one episode. So the new feature to keep things fresh is basically, I'm calling it Can't Get You Out of My Head, which is essentially, we're just going to talk about anything that you want to tip a hat to so that you've been listening to. So it could be new, it could be old, it's something you've discovered, and essentially anything shite that's got stuck in your head.
0: So that's the key, isn't it?
1: Yeah, really. And I've got a cracker for my something shite. What's been stuck in your head this week? So for the past two or three days, I've had... Sunshine After the Rain by Berry, The 1996 <laughs> Euro pop classic um, has been stuck it's, in my
0: head for three days. Can we just say, right, you said shite. That's an absolute banger. Come on. It's a classic tune. I mean, that,
1: it, it is because it, it basically nicks from Giorgio Moroder. Like yeah. so the, the underlying thing is from a better song, but it has been stuck in my head for three days. And honestly, murder might occur. Um, so what? It, so why has that been stuck in your head for three days? I have days? no idea. I have <laughs> absolutely no idea. <laughs> uh,
0: so what's been stuck in my head for the last few days is I cannot stop uh, humming to myself, Huey Lewis in the News, classic tune, I Want a New Drug. <laughs> <laughs> and the, re- the reason is I, I was reminded that I Can't Get a New Drug is the song that Ray Parker Jr., uh, let's say, was inspired by when he recorded the theme tune to Ghostbusters. So a uh, little bit of story is that Huey Lewis and News were apparently approached by Columbia Pictures to do the theme tune for Ghostbusters, but declined. And when they were filming uh, filming the, the movie, um, what they often do, uh, and I'm not... Uh, either I don't work in the film industry either so I'm not going to use technical terms but basically as they're filming certain scenes they'll play music underneath as like a bed track and in that they'd been playing Can't Get a New Drug an awful lot so when they'd signed Ray Parker Jr. to do the theme tune, Columbia Pictures sent uh, sent him the footage they'd been shooting to get a feel of the film, what, what it was about <laughs> and a lot of the scenes had Can't Get a New Drug playing as, as the bed track and then Ghostbusters came out and uh, <laughs> yeah so th- there was a an out of court settlement between Columbia Pictures Ray Parker Jr and Huey Lewis in the news regarding the um, plagiarism if you go on to YouTube someone's done a, a mashup of the two tracks and wow <laughs> wow I,
1: I mean is the is the mashup just essentially using the the analogy of a Venn diagram, is it just
0: a circle? Basically, yeah. It's basically, it it might as well just be the music from Can't Get a New Drug with the lyrics of Ghostbusters. (laughs) Hi, guys, Tim here. Sorry, I've just realised that for the last 30 seconds of this recording, I've been referring to the Huey Lewis and the news track, I Want a New Drug, as Can't Get a New Drug. So, yeah, sorry about that. Um... Never mind, eh? All right, take it easy. Enjoy the rest of the show. So, a new piece of music that I want to tip a hat to is
1: Go Girl, who are a four-piece I've liked for quite a while. They've recently released a new album, and their single "The Crack" really like it. And I would, I would strongly suggest you having you having a
0: look at it. Okay, so I've not heard that. So I'll, I'll, I'll certainly, uh, I'll certainly give that a listen. What I've been listening to this week is fans of the band Public Service Broadcasting might know that their uh, lead guitarist and uh, main auteur, Jay Wilgoose Esquire, released a side project album called Late Night Final uh, back in the last year. The album's called A Wonderful Hope. If you like public service broadcasting, you'll probably like Late Night Final pretty good.
1: I'll definitely check it. I've not heard it yet, but um, I'll definitely check it out because I'm a big fan of public service broadcasting.
0: Cool. So, yeah, we're, we're going to try and do this a bit. As well as talking about you know old stuff, we're gonna try and do a bit of you know what we've been listening to. And it might not necessarily be something that's brand new, it might be something that's new to us. Uh you know, just to um just give you more of a background into the sort of stuff we listen to, really.
1: Okay, so this week's album Clash was your choice, Mr. Uh Timothy. <laughs> Would you like to explain the reason for the for this selection?
0: So, yeah, so I I chose Stone Rose's second coming. And be here now by Oasis. So there's the obvious connection between those two is that you know huge Manchester indie bands. But to be honest with you, the main connection to cocaine is they are they as we will get into they are two albums where the recording was beset by issues related to illicit drugs.
1: The recording of this album has been supported by the work of Pablo Escobar. <laughs>
0: Uh, so, so yeah, th- those are our two albums today. Now, keen-eyed listeners, keen-eyed listeners, no, keen-eared listeners, that's better, will note that uh, at the end of our last show, I said that Kev was going to go through uh, The Second Coming and I was going to go through Be Here Now. We're going to swap things around a bit. I'm going to take us through Second Coming and Kev's going to take us through Be Here Now. So, as I, we said last time, we do things chronologically Second Coming was released in uh, nineteen ninety four. Be Here Now in ninety seven. So we'll do Second Coming first. So yeah, let's let's get to it, shall we? When was the first time you heard Second Coming? And so it was around uh,
1: ninety nine, two thousand. So a good few years after it after it initially come out. But I had become aware of its Essentially, the weight around its neck. The it's this. It's this disastrous album that sunk a band and made them implode. So I was aware of the the stories around it before I heard I heard the album, and many of the views that had become ossified amongst the music cognoscenti really.
0: Okay, so I I came to it a bit before that, not not when it came out. It would have been so it came out in December '94, and it would have been a couple of years after that. Uh, it's a common theme. This, as a result of another band I was playing in, although we never actually had a gig, but we just used to have rehearsals in my mum and dad's garage. So we were a garage band. I would have loved and that. Was, it was great. Honestly, it was it was such a great time. We had we had we had such a brilliant time. We we called ourselves the Consulates because um, the the fellow that played guitar uh, smoked that particular brand of menthol cigarette cool as a mountain stream. <laughs> Definitely makes your breath minty. <laughs> Other menthol cigarettes are available. Um, so he got into, got into the roses. Actually the first thing he introduced me to was the complete stone roses. So that's like the compilation of the stuff they'd done with, with Silverstone. But through that uh, I'd got into second coming. So yeah, uh, uh, because of that, that personal connection of how i got into the stone roses uh and got into this album as we'll get into it it does hold a, a special place in my heart to be honest with you
1: so are you are you saying that your favorite stone roses album is the best of the beatles <laughs> 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 one for the partridge fans there
0: <laughs> okay before we get into the track by track i'll just go through some of the facts and, and some of the background because actually there's there's quite a lot of background to To go through with this album, so it was released, as I said, in December '94 in the UK. It was recorded primarily at at Rockfield Studios in Monmouthshire, in South Wales, not far from where I live, actually. Now, Rockfield, for those of you that that aren't aware of it, it's it's got a lot of history. There's so many acts that have recorded at Rockfield over the years. Most famously, it's where Queen recorded "A Night at the Opera." Uh, which is the album on which Bohemian Rhapsody appears. And latterly, it is the studio where Oasis recorded their second album, What's a Story, Morning Glory? And uh, there was a documentary on BBC back in 2020. I think it's still available on the iPlayer called The Studio on the Farm about the history of Rockfield Studios. And I'd recommend people go and watch it because it's fantastic
1: so would you say that that this studio is essentially britain's equivalent to muscle shoals which uh if you if you're not aware it has a a long history in sort of american music where basically everyone's recorded and um a lot of aretha franklin a lot of the motown stuff were certainly the motown backing band were, were working out of there
0: yeah absolutely uh, and it's certainly one of it's certainly one of it, it has less it has less glamour than Sally Abbey Road. But yeah, you know, the, the list of artists that have recorded at Rockfield is is as long as your arm. It, it's it, a lot of history. And um, if I ever do get to record my album, I'm going to record it at Rockfield.
1: How many uh, guitar tracks will that one have?
0: All, all of them. <laughs> will have all of the guitar tracks. <laughs> um, but So as I said, before we get to Rockfield, there's some history. So... Uh, now, Second Coming was released five and a half years after the debut album. And there's a lot of background as to why that is. So Second Coming was released on Geffen Records, whereas they had previously been signed to Silvertone. Now in, in July of 1990, so this is within 12 months of the first album having been released. The Roses attempted to secure their release from Silvertone because they'd been unhappy about the the way they'd been paid essentially given the success of the album um
1: my my understanding and please correct me correct me if i'm if i'm wrong on this the the way that silvertone had structured the deal was that silvertone would take the majority of the of the income from cd sales now given (laughs) given when um the first album came out basically everyone bought stuff on cd so the band got nothing. Was is is my is my own son yeah. from from reading?
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly what I've read as as well. So so clearly, the the band you know they had this this breakthrough album which had which had made them certainly around the UK and 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 had even you know broken ground within the US and they weren't making any money off it. So yeah, they they tried to secure their release from Silvertone. Now, uh, the owners of Silvertone, uh, Zomba Records, they took out an injunction. In September of 1990, and that prevented the band from signing with another label. Which basically, well, not only signing with another label, but playing live as well. So it basically put them in in limbo. So, you know, obviously they they took the record company to court. And uh, in May of 91, a court found in favor of the Stone Roses. Uh, at which point they signed with Geffen Records. However, then Silvertone or Zomba. Uh, appealed the ruling, uh, and that delayed proceedings for for a further year. So it wasn't until 1992 when that was resolved, the band were finally allowed to start recording with Geffen Records, and they'd they'd lost effectively three years of their career, at the point when they had just broken through into the mainstream.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, when you look at a lot of their contemporaries and bands during this 90s period, they'd release a, a first album. And obviously the Stone Roses first album was so incredibly successful to then essentially the band to go in, to go into stasis for three years and lose all that momentum and lose the, the record-buying public's attention at that point where you, you've you got the the balls of the world and you're ready to go. That must have absolutely destroyed them, and creatively
0: yes. as well. That you, yes. you couldn't even go and play those songs again. Exactly. So that's, that's, that's the context to, I suppose, the way the band was feeling, but also the weight of expectation that was around, around this album. So the album was recorded between 93 and 94. So the sessions at Rockfield lasted 347 days, so the best part of a year. Christ. <laughs> it's a long old time. Now, part of that, as I say, is a band re-establishing its groove. And also, in fairness, it should be said that that Ian Brown, John Squire, and and Rennie had recently become fathers, so they wanted to spend time with their, their children, which is all fair enough. But a couple of quotes I want to read. One from Ian Brown, around the 347 days. Maybe 50 of them days would just be us getting stoned, listening to our favourite records through the studio sound system. So there's there's one thing. Work ethic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and then John Squire, uh, in an interview with Melody Maker in May of 95, uh, he was asked, uh, there were rumours that he'd had a serious problem with cocaine during the recording of the album, to which Squire said, yeah, I did too much. It made me antisocial. That's not going to help with with the band
1: working effectively
0: when you're all living together on a farm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the what you what you certainly, if you do any background research into this, even as cursory as, as mine, the fallout from this album is fairly spectacular. So there are rumours. Yeah. Around Rennie's situation and why he left the band. So there's allegation and counter-allegation and allegation about his his drug intake. A lot of it me Ian Brown, to be honest. Like he he alleges around Squire and the amount of coke that he was having and completely destabiling destabilising everything. John Squire said, "Well, everyone was taking stuff. Manny was on everything." And what what you what you find is that you can't really get to the to the bottom of what actually went on, but all the all you can tell is that it was it was highly dysfunctional <laughs> in terms of a of a yep. recording process.
0: Yeah, and, and ironically, as we'll get into, uh, there's at least one track on the album which is clearly an anti-drugs song.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so. so the artwork, uh, as with all of the, the Roses releases, was produced by Squire himself. I think it's in stark contrast to the artwork from the first album. You know, this is very dark, very quite confused, I, I think. Uh, a lot of religious iconography on it prominently features uh, stone cherubs, which apparently were photographed from a, a bridge in Newport, uh, those cherubs were subsequently stolen by pissed up fans of the band basically <laughs> but as I said it, it's a you you look at it in comparison to the the artwork for the first album you know with the lemons and uh, sort of jackson Pollock feel to the the background of that with this one it's just this is a lot darker and it feels a lot more confused as i say and I think that's
1: that reflects the confusion within the album
0: so uh, a couple more things just before we start going through it so fans of the projects of the members of the band after they split uh, might be interested to know or may already know that um the seahorse's first single that was john squire's band after the band had split uh, the seahorse's first single lovers the law was actually demoed uh for this album but didn't make the cut and uh, the third single from Ian Brown's first album, Unfinished Monkey Business, which is called Can't See Me. Uh, the rhythm section for that uh, came out of some of the, the jamming sessions between uh, he and Manny and Rennie uh, as part of the sessions for this album. So, uh, and those are two good songs for me. And you'd have liked to have heard them on this album recorded by the Stone Roses. Yeah, you can,
1: I mean, certainly with with You Can't See Me, you can see the the legacy from the yeah, uh, we're begging you, really, and the the way that the way that
0: sounds, you can certainly see that there's a lineage. So, anything more before we start going through the tracks? No, I'm um, I'm ready to get right into it. Okay, so um, you might be ready to get right into it, and I might be ready to get right into it. Unfortunately, the Stone Roses disagree with you. <laughs> so- yeah, they're they're taking their sweet old time to um, get to the song. So the first track, "Breaking Into Heaven," I mean, it's the opening track on the album. It comes in at a staggering eleven minutes and twenty-one seconds, and the song doesn't start for four and a half minutes. So, would would you like to hear my hear my notes? Um, Please. So, as long as they don't take four and a half minutes of rhythmic <laughs> drumming and flowing water, you've got to wait two minutes for the drumming to start. So my
1: notes are three minutes in, get on with it. Four minutes, you're really trying my patience. Four and a half minutes, thank fuck the song started. Around 6.20,
0: first chorus. <laughs> I, I, I can't disagree with anything about what you've just said. It's, it's uh, a real struggle to start off with. I mean, you've not released the record for five and a half years. You want to recapture that magic you had. And you started with four and a half minutes of running water... Weird twiddly guitar riffs and fucking Rennie on his bongos. Well, not only that, the the
1: the last. So I made a note of it because the because like, my pa- my patience had gone. <laughs> like, like the last lyrical content in an over eleven minute songs is around eight eight forty five eight fifty. Yep.
0: I also I also noted down how many solos. So uh, in the outro to the song after the last chorus, I counted four. Separate guitar tracks, each of which playing a different solo. So it's not just like I'll play a solo, bit of chorus, playing of the solo. No, no, no. Squires laying layering solos on top of each other.
1: I mean, within the song, and I, <laughs> there is a there is a beautiful irony. There is a lyric in that I can't wait anymore. It's like, yeah, like by by four minutes thirty, I could not wait anymore, and <laughs> I, I genuinely think that the the patience that, that that initial song tested of the listener of yep. the public who had been waiting for it and yep. journalists who were who were annoyed by the fact that they gave their first comeback interview to the big issue not to one of yep. their papers or the or the music press they pissed everyone off with the first song and so
0: yeah,
1: and like i can honestly honestly say like after after driving south i was still annoyed with the first. so it takes you until getting further into the album to to let that go and i think that yeah. that is very re- reflective in the reviews that they've subsequently had because you haven't earned that <laughs> like you've not earned like fucking around for 11 11 minutes when you, you've not recorded
0: anything for five years exactly i, can, I mean so A couple of points I'd make. The long, drawn-out tracks wasn't anything new for the Stone Roses. You know, Fool's Gold, which until this point had been their biggest hit, came in at nine and a half minutes long, and the last six minutes of that is just drum loops and Squire dicking around with his solos. So this wasn't anything new. To give the song some due, personally, I quite like the riff that eventually opens the song. I think lyrically it's interesting. So it it seems to be a criticism of people who seek to control people through their faith. And there's some interesting themes within the lyrics. And actually, the theme of of, of religion comes through quite a, a few times in some of these songs. But come on, fellas, just bang straight into the song after four. You know, cut the first four minutes out, go straight into it, and you've and I say as you said, cut the solos out at the end. You've got a fantastic four minute opener which is sounds completely different to what you've done before is interesting to listen to and engages people i do not understand the production choice at all here no not at all it it, it instantly
1: turns you off and i know that there are people who may be listening to this or certainly on the internet who will who will defend that as an opening and maybe if you are in a chemically induced state the that's you're, you're loving the sounds and you it, you can build into the song and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry, like going at it completely straight with just listening to the music, it tried my fucking
0: patience. Yeah, I agree entirely. Uh, so without further ado, shall we stop talking about the song? Otherwise we'll go on long of 11 minutes, 20 months. Seconds. <laughs> so track two is, is Driving South. So my notes... Well, the first thing I've written and I've underlined it. Uh, I'm sorry, I like this song a lot. I do. I've always i i, I wrote
1: absolute banger. It's a chunky riff to open with. It yep. sounds massive, yep. and it just it just sounds more rosesy for once. a better phrase,
0: yeah. It's it's a it's a cracking song. It, it is a cracking song. Yeah, as you said, it sounds massive. The drums are huge, booming drums in there. The opening riff, as you said, is is really chunky and um, it's it's basically a take on a a blues track. There is clearly a nod to Robert Johnson's Crossroads in the lyrics where Ian Brown sings, I stopped for an old man hitching at a lonely old crossroads. He said, I ain't going nowhere. I'm just trying to see if I can steal your soul. Uh, you can't get as clear without actually singing Crossroads you can't get a clearer reference than that
1: so for for those who aren't who aren't aware who Robert Johnson is the legend of 30s bluesman who sold his the story is sold his soul to the devil to become a great a great guitarist and the the song Crossroads is essentially about
0: him absolutely and uh famously covered by Cream featuring Eric Clapton, who we covered at great detail in our previous Clash.
1: Yes, and I'm not going to add to, um, not a racist, but yeah, is
0: a racist. And don't worry, we'll get on to the problematic things to do with at least one member of this group later on. Yeah, I like Driving South. Uh, So a couple of interesting things. So this is a song written by Squire. In fact, unlike the first album, most of the tracks on this were written solely by Squire. Whereas on the first album, they were they were noted as Squire and Brown collaborations. But one of the lyrics, uh, "You ain't too young or pretty, and you sure as hell can't sing." Do you think John's trying to send a message to anyone there, Kev? Hmm, I can't think
1: of anyone whose musical performance could be questioned from the band. I mean, we've we've both we've both seen Ian Brown live and his. It you it is so hit or miss whether he's in tune or not.
0: Definitely, hundred percent, and we'll come on to that more later on as well. <laughs> uh, the last thing I've got to say is that so at the end of the song, there are you hear some key tones of a phone being dialed, and uh, those key tones are oh eight hundred travel six, which is the toll free number that uh, Brown sings about any time you want to sell your soul in the song.
1: Um, the the only thing I would I would add is the I could you could probably lose the last thirty seconds minute to the song.
0: Yeah, they, they struggle to end it. Yeah, uh, but as I said, that's not unique to this song. The Roses had a history with struggling to find a way to end songs. A lot of fades. Yeah. So yeah, that's Striving itself. As I said, I like it. I like it for all it for its flaws for its length. I really like it. It's a great song. Yeah. On to the, uh, not chronologically, but in terms of track order, the first single from the album, Ten Story Love Song. So I've not written a great deal about this. It's a different sound to Driving South and to Breaking Into Heaven. The song itself, it's a you and me versus the world track, it seems to me, if you listen to the lyrics.
1: I mean, for for me, again, it sounds very roses-y that I've clearly... Just go. I'll I'll trademark that as a word now. It's a love. It's a lovely song, and I don't. It's it's also of the album thus far. It's the most disciplined song. Um, it has has a solid structure to it. It's there's not loads of noodling, and it it's I really like a Ten Story Love Song. Yeah, it, it stands up with the rest of the Stone Roses classics. It's it's a really good song, and yeah, yeah there's there's not a huge amount to say to it because it sounds like there're other stuff it essentially
0: it doesn't it doesn't fit with other things on this album well I, I, I we'll get into there's a conversation to be had about how many of these songs fit with each other so we spoke on 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 the last clash around all things must pass and the number of changes of pace there's a lot of changes of pace on this album to the extent that it seems to me at least that they struggled to have a concept of what they wanted the album to be.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, I think, I think a thing that can be thrown at this album is it's quite sclerotic. It doesn't, it doesn't have a, it, and it's reflective of the band going in different directions. There, yeah. there are, there are so many different things going on there that you can kind of go, well, yeah, the, this is, this is a group going in different directions. And, and, obviously we know we know what happened subsequently so it kind of backs backs that up the there isn't a consistent sound or theme whereas obviously within the first album whilst there are different songs with different timbre and different structure to them they are all of a piece this this isn't it's a collection of songs
0: so last couple of things I've, I've written about this song. So I said, it's, it's a you and me versus the world track. It, I've written, it, it It sounds defiant. And I just, I had a thought. So this is, as I say, December 94, the album was released. So we are in a post definitely maybe world. Oasis were on the scene by this time. Now, obviously I don't know the chronology of exactly what song was written when, or exactly what song was recorded when, but in a way it's is this their answer to live forever which in itself is a you and me versus the world defiant song
1: um i mean the obviously they they weren't whilst they were holed up in wales consuming a prodigious amount of of drugs they weren't living in a vacuum so they're going to be influenced by what was what was going on at the time and definitely maybe was you know, it was a hu- it was a huge album. So without question, it's gonna it's gonna have had an influence, and vice vice versa. There are things about the Second Coming and particularly how Brown Sound sings on it that are
0: reminiscent when you listen to Be Here Now and how Liam sounds on it. Okay, so the next track is Daybreak. The first thing that strikes me for well, it, it 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 comes in after the end of the We Love Song with that line from Manny, and then. Rennie kicking in with the drums, with the riff from Squire. This, to me, is the rhythm section to the Stone Roses at their absolute best. What Manny and Rennie do through this song, allow Squire and Brown free reign to just cut loose over the track. That's why you love the Stone Roses, and this is the first time on this album you really get that. It is the mad thing that when you, when again you read the stuff about, about the album
1: and about how John Squire had basically stopped using Rennie and was, was looking more towards drum loops and drum machines and all this kind of thing. And you hear, you hear the quality of drumming in it. Like that's throughout, throughout the, throughout my notes and particularly into Daybreak, it's like Rennie's drumming just comes, comes across so well. And, if you if you have ever been fortunate enough to see them live, which we which we both have, he is a phenomenal drummer. the the only other The only other note that I really had on this is basically it sounds like a recorded jam. I, d- I don't mind it, but it could, it could probably be a little shorter for my liking.
0: But for that, I think you, you could cut at least the last minute out. It is long six six minutes thirty three. This this track comes in at it's long. The song itself, you listen to the lyrics, it, it, it's. Clearly, you know, an anti-racism song. There's references to Rosa Parks in there. Lyrics like "Black bones are the original bones. This the whole wide world should know." It's to be fair to the Roses and to things we'll talk about. Ian Brown later on. This is one uh, where, yeah, clearly speaking out against against racism.
1: Yeah, um, which which we which we will not criticise them for for doing for doing so. Uh, yeah, it's 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 perfectly good. It's a good jam. Goes on a little bit too long, but yeah, I, I, I like I like it because because as you say, the the rhythm section comes through so well. And my God, they have got a rhythm section.
0: Yeah, exactly. Then we move on to your star will shine. Now, this after four different but all very guitar-heavy tracks, I think this is a nice change of pace. To be honest with you.
1: Yeah, I, I wrote. I, I wrote down. It's enjoyable, different to what's gone before. It's certainly something we're, we're going to go on to talk about. It's ironically more Beatles-y than anything at all on Be Here Now, and it doesn't. It doesn't stay too long. It's. It's a. It's a palate cleanser. It's. It, it's different, and
0: it's not a particularly long song, and I quite. I quite like that about it. The song itself. So it's it written by John Squire um, about his baby daughter. Written from the perspective of of watching her as she sleeps, uh, you can clearly hear from the lyrics it's about a father that who wants to protect his child but is also fearful that he'll fail at, at parenthood. So the last the last lyric from the song is quite striking in that regard. Uh, so it is uh, your distant son will shine like the gun that's trained right between your daddy's eyes, and at the end of a nice what seems like an uplifting song. About a father singing to his daughter—that's quite a dark lyric to sing. And I
1: suppose, I suppose that reflects the there is a darkness within the album, and that that is obviously we said that Squire wrote like virtually all of it, and may may be reflective of the darkness around his his cocaine addiction and that that kind of thing. Yeah, that, That's exactly. that's you know there's there's no there's no nothing to back that up, but obviously um that's just me sort of surmising from from obviously the other stories, but it it
0: it is that is bloody dark it is so I do have a suggestion though, as a father myself, and now I, I can't say I've been through exactly the same life experiences he has, but if he's that conscious about failing his daughter, maybe just lay off the coke a bit, John, to be honest with you <laughs> okay, anything else on your star or shine? No, I, I, I think I, I think we've
1: covered it barely.
0: Next track, um, Straight to the Man. So this is the only song which is uh, credited solely to Ian Brown. And uh, it's, it sounds very different to the rest of the tracks on the album. And that's deliberate. So Ian Brown himself is quoted as saying, uh, I don't like hoary rock and roll. I mean, it's not a great start when you listen to the rest of the album, Ian. But okay. <laughs> uh, that's why I put Straight to the Man on there. The album sounded far too rocky. Agreed, so I wanted to put something funky on there, and yeah, I I I think it. If that was his intention, I think it achieves it. Yeah, I mean,
1: so again, uh, Rennie's drumming is is really good in it. The and I do like that the guitar track is is less prominent. It's one of the things in the previous episode when we spoke about Layla and other love songs. Is the that that album became a slog towards the end because of how guitar heavy it was. It's a fun opening it's not a massively memorable song it feels a bit album filler or it would very much make a b-side for for me anyway it's fine it's nothing like to me it's uh, it's it's it's
0: never it's never
1: going to be as memorable as other songs on on the album
0: okay well, so i agree with your last point but i i feel a possibly a bit more fondly about it than you cuz for me it's it's nice to have at least one track on the album where John Squire clean, doesn't have free reign to put all the guitar tracks on there that he wants. And (laughs) this is me saying this, this is me. And, and you know, after you've got, Your Star Will Shine's a nice change of pace. The first four tracks on this album are really all about, not all about, but there's a lot of John Squire in there saying, look how good I am at the guitar. This isn't. And yeah, lyrically, there's not much in there. I would say if you listen to this song, having listened to a lot of Brown's solo material, I know you have. There's clearly the genesis of what was to come within this track.
1: Oh yeah, without without question, as as with the the next the next song on the album, the that that clear like these two songs are very influential on his on his later career.
0: Yeah, definitely. But I like this song because it's so different to the rest of the album. That's why I enjoy it.
1: No, fair, fair enough. As I say, I just don't find it ma- massively memorable. There are other songs on the album that grab you and stay with you. This this one, it's
0: perfectly fine. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So the, yeah, you just briefly mentioned the next track on the album. That's begging you. So this was uh, it was the third single released, but again, in terms of their order on the album, it's the second second single. It starts again. Fans of the first album will know that Don't Stop is basically waterfall in reverse. This starts with a reverse guitar riff. Furious is the word I've written here. This is an absolute cornucopia of sound is what I've written as well.
1: Wow, that's that's quite the the way to to refer to it. It sounds like nothing else on this album. It it, it comes it comes in like an alien that's just dropped in. What, I, what I'd what say listening to it, because I'm not listened to Second Coming for for a while. It still sounds really fresh now, and it's to to me again <laughs> the irony of Oasis always being compared with the Beatles. This is very Tomorrow Never Knows with the with the looping and. Yeah, and all the and the drumming and and everything that go goes on with it. It's it like I really really like begging you. I think it's a, it's a fantastic song. W- like how it's got on this album, which is <laughs> you know which which is un- unashamedly Zeppelin influenced. It yeah, just well, seems a we'll, bit mad. We'll,
0: we'll come back to Zeppelin a bit later, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is one where so you mentioned Rennie. Uh, and his uh, displeasure at, at Squire's wanting to use a lot of drum loops. This is one where clearly that is the case. The, the the drumming here is is basically looped all through the track. Well, it's an indie disco banger, this, isn't it?
1: Oh God, yeah. I mean, of of an album where even even the the most prominent, they're not. It's not the most danceable album. This this being a,
0: a very much an exception on there. It's definitely about drugs. (laughs) So just a selection of the lyrics. King B in a frenzy, ready to blow. Saw the dust that he made. Does it call you or maul you and drive you insane? So apparently, it's basically about what the acid house scene became after the drug gangs infiltrated Manchester and took over and you had uh, Browns were saying, you know, kids age 16, 17 in the Hacienda and likes with you know guns and stuff
1: so for for some of our listeners who may not have been about or are not enough from the the uk um certainly at the time that the the album the album came out a little bit before manchester was riven with uh drug wars essentially and this this is what the the song the song refers to as as tim says you know, young kids turning up to the to the famous Hacienda nightclub, tooled up with with guns and that to, to battle over the turf because to fund their drug habits, and that's that's what this song this song refers to and is very cont- contemporaneous to what was happening in Manchester at the time. And you know, m- murder side, moss side, like all that was all that was going on at the at this time.
0: Yeah, like you said, I really like begging you. It's it's it is out of place, but it's good. It's really good
1: yeah there's not there's nothing really more
0: to say it's it's a cracking song. okay uh tightrope is the next track so this is another one about that squire wrote about his daughter and his fears about failing her as a father you know that the lyric i'm on a tightrope nine miles high um other lyrics in the song she's all that ever mattered and all that ever will it's a long long way down it's very gospel it's very blues this the last chorus is sort of sung in the round i really like this song I, when i listened to this album to to research this show i was in a bad mood and by the end of this song i was singing i was clapping and i felt good i really like this track so yeah it's
1: manny's bass is is great I love I love how it built, how it builds and it just re, it works really well following him begging you, it's a it's a very Stone style song just with the simplicity the claps the the gospel element to it. it it's very reminiscent of of a lot of their their work. It's it's a really good song. It's really good.
0: And we go on then to good times. So the first thing I've written against good times is harmonica in a Stone Roses song. Yeah.
1: Um, and this is, this is, I suppose, where where you start to see the avowed Zeppelin influence. That it is, it is very Zeppelin-y with obviously the the harmonica in there, a very prominent bass that that develops and the song develops with it within it. Um, it it works really well. I do really like it. It could do with maybe losing thirty seconds a minute. Squire would definitely have gone on for longer if not if not stopped by the fade out. He what he would
0: have he would have gone full eight nine minutes here. I've got a vision of me Brown and Rennie behind the mixing desk just, just turning down the fade whilst they're recording the song. Why did you fade out? Oh, it must have been a fault in the desk. But it's, it's we don't need to re-record, it's a good track, John. Just leave it as it is. No, I've just got a vision of them like fucking off to the shops.
1: <laughs> Come it's back. There,
0: and, yeah. How many tracks does he put down whilst we uh, knit to Tesco? So I've got. I like Good Times. I. It's very bluesy. It's. It's. It's as you said, very Zeppelin influenced. But I do have an issue with it, in that to listen to the song is very upbeat, but. It's another song about drugs and, and I'm quoting Manny here from a, an interview the band gave to Melody Maker in 1995. Good times is just a focus on what's happening. Everybody on smack fucking up. So apparently in the time up to and around the recording of this album, 15 close acquaintances of the band had died of drug related illnesses. Most of them heroin overdoses. And there's, you know, he listen to the last word of the chorus of this song, the last lyric of the chorus of this song. I'm hooked, line and sinker, she's my heroine. It's a song about heroin addiction. So with those lyrics and that subject matter, it seems really jarring to me that it listens like an up-tempo blues track.
1: Yeah, um, I, had, I had picked up the, because you can't really not pick up the drug references in it, but I hadn't really put together the up-tempo nature of it. Um, the for a for a song that is critical of of drug of drug taking and drug addiction, that it, it is quite it is quite positive
0: and quite sing-alongy. And uh, as I say, despite its flaws, despite that, I, I do like the song. I just think it's a bit too jarring. Yeah, I can I can see I can see that point. Okay, so uh, track 10 is uh, Stairway to Tev- Heaven. Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> track 10 is Tears. Wow. So my notes, like, and I will
1: read them verbatim. Very Zep sounding. Stairway is calling. Particularly the intro of the drums, etc. from Two Minutes. Seriously, Jimmy Page is demanding royalties here.
0: <laughs> yep. So it is a song in movements. All the way through, it's six minutes plus. It's a song... In movements, just like stairway, twelve-string guitars all over the place, just like stairway. There's even a, a sort of fluty organ part in it, just like stairway. But I really like it. Sorry, I really like tears. It, it's, it's, it's fine.
1: <laughs> stairway to Fallowfield. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is that an original Kevin Hansen joke? It is actually. That is excellent. <laughs> I'm not editing that out. That's staying in. <laughs> so it's it's another one that seems to be written about John Squire's daughter. And I, I've done this a lot, but I'm going to read some of the lyrics. Yeah, sure. So if you hear me crying or talking in my sleep, don't be afraid. It's just the hours that I keep. We've got a love to last a million years. A love that could never fade through the tracks of your tears. Yeah, you know, given what we've talked about before, it seems to me very clear that that's what he's singing about. My problem with that particular passage is that Ian Brown is singing like Robert Plant when he's singing those lyrics. It, it, it's a bit too blatantly trying to be Stairway to Heaven. This song, it yeah, it
1: like you, the 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 change the changes in pace, every everything about it. It's, it's it's a jarg stairway that's that's what it is it's, it's a mar, it's a market knockoff stairway
0: <laughs> yep but i still really like it Soz.
1: <laughs> i'm i'm fine with it I, I like zeppelin so don't get me wrong but that's not what i really go to the stone roses for it's fine that's fair you know i'll i'll listen to it
0: it's not my favorite song on the album No. Okay. Uh, And then we're on to How Do You Sleep, the penultimate uh, song. To me, this sounds like the closest thing on the album to first era Stone Roses. This has always reminded me of what the world is waiting for. It's one where Squire's guitar complements Brown's vocals in the same way as it does on any track you could name from the first album. It doesn't dominate. I really like this song.
1: Yeah, it's a perfectly good song. It's not too long. What what I thought about when uh, when again listening to it in in the context of much later after it was released is the the couple of singles that they they released when they reformed for the for the live shows very reminiscent this of of the of those of those songs. I haven't really got a huge amount to say. It's a perfectly good song. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't stay t- it
0: doesn't stay too long. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's a good Stone Roses song. It is, yeah. I mean, lyrically, I don't know exactly what it's about or who it's about, but it's clearly a revenge song. The lyrics are dripping with spite. Again, it it takes you back to songs on the first album, such as Shoot You Down or Bye Bye Badman, which are in the same vein of really spiteful, cutting lyrics. And that's one of the things I like about this track.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean I haven't really got a huge a huge amount to add to that to be honest. Um yeah, I think you I think you covered it.
0: Okay, so that brings us on to what was the first single released and actually the rose's biggest hit. It reached number two in the UK. Uh Love Spreads. The first thing I've written here, what a tune.
1: Yeah, I I love this song. And it's a it's got such a huge, massive, massive opening to it. Bobby Gillespie. He also a fan of the drugs, um, hailed it as the greatest comeback single ever, and it you know I, I suppose the the difficulty when when that's the lead single, <laughs> and then you open with Breaking Into Heaven, you've got you've got everyone right up for this for this new album, yeah, and it's yeah because it's it's a brilliant song, it, and I'm sure you're going to talk about the iconography uh, contained within.
0: I am indeed. So it's a song about Jesus being a black woman. And um, so a couple of quotes, one from Ian Brown. If you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, they tell you that Mary Magdalene gave Jesus his power. And then John Squire more directly saying, why couldn't Jesus have been a black woman? It's just an attack on the white guy with a beard sitting on a cross because that reinforces the patriarchy. And you can hear that in the lyrics, you know, love spreads her arms, waits there for the nails, cold black skin, naked in the rain, and the refrain in the chorus, the messiah is my sister, ain't no king man, she's my queen.
1: It's a great song. There's there's nothing really more you can say you can say about it. It's it's massive, it's huge, and it's it's a great song. Okay. Is well, there is
0: one more song, is there not?
1: There is technical so
0: actually so i have i have this album on cd and i have a vinyl version uh, pleasingly the secret track which is called the foz does not appear on the vinyl version so it, for, on the cd there were actually several 4 second tracks with nothing on them so there were a total of 99 tracks on the cd and a, was it track number 90 it was something it like that, yeah. Is a seven-minute bluegrass jam called "The Fozz, which is quite tedious, I have yeah, to say.
1: If it if it was maybe two minutes of them like messing about, it's a bit of throwaway fun, but it's ultimately
0: pointless with how long it is. It's
1: seven minutes. It's like, yeah. yeah.
0: And even without that, the album is already seventy-three minutes long. Oh yeah, lads. You've had enough now, come on. Or, or specifically, John, it's time for bed. <laughs> uh, and so that's that's the second coming. So as usual, I'll just read a little bit around how the album was received, what its legacy was, etc. So yeah, just in terms of its uh, commercial success, so it reached number four in the UK album charts. It's been certified platinum in the UK. It has sold over one million copies worldwide. So, by most definitions, it is a commercially successful album, or at least has become a commercially successful album. It's it's just how synonymous it's
1: become with bloated, failed second albums. And I think, well, and when we obviously come to our to our conclusion, I do think it, that that's slightly
0: unfair. So, I'm going to read you a little bit about the reviews that it received in 2011. The Independent ranked it amongst the top 10 worst career moves, stating that it dismantled the perfect pop formula, which again, I think is harsh. When the album first came out, the NME in 1994 said that anything other than a stone cold classic that sounded like it had been beamed in from another planet was going to be a jarring anticlimax. Second Coming is exactly that. Rolling Stone said that it's, Tuneless retro psychedelic grooves are bloated to six plus minutes. I mean, one could argue that's just a factually correct statement.
1: <laughs> I mean, there, there are there are some bloated songs on there, but as we as we will discuss, there is one that there is a champion in this in this game for that.
0: There, so there's a reason I put these two albums together. <laughs> <laughs> Not all reviews were negative. The LA Times said that it's inspired guitar work uh, and there are standouts that offer a soulful earnestness. And Select Magazine in 1995 rated it number 12 in their top 50 albums of the year. But as you said, I, I, again, I think you've got to read the reviews of this album at the time. As I said earlier, you're in a post-Definitely Maybe world. Oasis had taken the Stone Rose's crown as being the must that everyone's going to pin their hopes to for northern attitudey fuck you rock music, and then the roses come out with this? I think it left a lot of people disappointed because of that.
1: Uh, again, the a lot of the a lot of the bands that came out in the nineties would certainly refer to or make some reference to how they were they weren't necessarily punk sounding but certainly embrace the punk aesthetic when you're coming out with a zeppelin like zeppelin is as far from punk as you possibly can get and yep. and are essentially the the bet noir of the of the punk scene so coming out with an album that, that's certainly very influenced and one song where you know the there might well be a
0: plagiarism suit you're on a in straight straight yeah. away now all that is just not even scratching the surface Surface the album's true legacy is in what happened to the band, and we've took you know suggested it this earlier. But so, in March 1995, this is three months after the album's release, Rennie leaves. There are numerous reasons cited for Rennie's departure from the band. One being, as you mentioned earlier, Kev, that is dissatisfaction at Squire wanting to use a lot of drum loops on their songs, although that given what we've just listened to in the second coming, and the number of, as you said, Zeppelin-heavy tracks is a bit incongruous, I might suggest. Uh, Ian Brown says that it was around disagreements with him. Uh, So again, Brown said, about Rennie, me and him had a row. He didn't turn up for an interview with The Big Issue, which you referred to earlier as the the cover issue. He then didn't turn up for the video shoot for 10-story love song. And, yeah, so in March 95, Rennie uh, officially was uh, left the band. He was replaced with Robbie Maddox. Now, Robbie Maddox recorded one track with the band, which is a version of Love Spreads that was recorded for the 1995 War Child help album. And I don't know if you've heard that. Uh, no. It's chaotic. It's just not Love Spreads. It's not the Stone Roses. No offense to Robbie Maddox. Sure, he's a cracking drummer. Sure, he's a great guy. But you listen to that compared to the version that is on the album. It's it's a bad cover version.
1: Well, much much like some any any band where they've got a really good drummer. That if you lose if you lose that, you may try and bring someone else in. I mean, could you imagine New Order with without uh, Stephen Morris drumming? They just would not be anywhere near the same. The same band,
0: or you know, Zeppelin without without Bonham. I was going to say, there's a there's a reason Zeppelin uh, stopped recording when John Bonham died. <laughs> exactly. So, you know,
1: losing such a key element, and because certainly, if you if you're playing some of the certainly songs off the first album, that, that the the groove from the rhythm section is so key and integral to their sound that you lose
0: that and. What what have you got? So moving on, they were due to headline Glastonbury in 1995. They had to cancel that set because John Squire broke his arm. They were replaced on the bill by Pulp, and I think with regards to Pulp, the rest is history. And I'm sure we'll talk about them in future on this show.
1: Oh yeah, I mean now you talk, you're talking Glastonbury headline sets. Now that that is
0: that is a one. So John Squire leaves in April 1996 stating that this is the inevitable conclusion of a gradual social and musical separation over the last few years. The band carried on. They replaced Squire with Aziz Ibrahim, who went on to play guitar with Ian Brown on certainly his first two albums. And and Aziz is a really good guitarist. I really like the work he did with Brown. Yeah. Unfortunately
1: he was, he was replacing an iconic guitarist. Like, Mm. so yeah i mean similar to Ro- to Robbie Maddox there, that a, that's a shit job like coming in yep. to coming into you know replace john squire who is what whatever you think of the, the of second coming he is a, he is a fantastic guitarist and is iconic he has an iconic sound you you're coming in to replace that it's it's a shit job that and he yep. he did he he did the best he could but the band the band had fallen apart
0: at that point anyway well, exactly, and and it and it really did culminate uh, at the Reading Festival in nineteen ninety six, where the band played a headline set with no John Squire, with no Rennie. The enemy described that set as an off-key, passionless performance, the long, drawn-out demise of one of Britain's best-loved bands, and I think that sums it up pretty well, to be honest with you. Yeah, the,
1: it was a it was a long drawn out death um, yeah. that started with Rennie leaving. They they tried to stumble and carry on. Ian Brown in in an interview with Uncut later, where he is fairly savage to particularly Squire. He said he said that they were doing all right and that they'd found their they'd found their groove. We we weren't around. We didn't see him at that point, so can't re- can't really say whether that that's true or not. But the shambles that was the Redding performance was the final nail in the coffin of, of, yeah. of what was already
0: dead, essentially. Well, exactly. And so you said it started with Benny leaving. I'd argue it started with the the suit with Silvertone with, as you, as we said at the start taking three years out of the career when they were, they should have been right at the top. That's where it all started.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and
0: any band that would struggle to, to recover from that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that was not the end of the story. The band reformed in October 2011. Um, they played uh, some gigs uh, at Heaton Park in Manchester in 2012, which, as you alluded to earlier, we were lucky enough to go to one of. That'd be great. And then we, they were fantastic. And then we saw them again in 2016, was it? Yeah. And both times I saw them, they were fantastic. If any of the listeners haven't seen the Shane Meadows documentary uh, Made of Stone, which was released in June of 2013, um, if you're a fan of the Stone Roses, I would strongly recommend you go and watch that. Not now, wait till the end of the show. But when once the show's finished, go and watch Made of Stone. It's it's made from the perspective of a fan with love to the band. It's it's fantastic. It, I mean, I've 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 got a great love
1: for Shane Meadows' work. Um, what what you can also see and is very evident within the within the documentary is the fragility. One, the the immense musical ability within that band, like Ren, Rennie's drumming, particularly in the in the practice sessions, you just see how amazing he is. Um, and what what also comes across is the fragility of that of the truce that occurred there are there are some there are some fraught moments between the ba- the band members the, the the interviews and everything that happened in the aftermath um certainly ha- haven't
0: all those wounds haven't healed so just in closing really the band as as kev said earlier they they did release some some new material two singles back in 2016 all for one and beautiful thing they were fine they were okay i, I quite liked them yeah, I mean they 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 weren't they weren't bad, they weren't
1: amazing, they were yeah, they 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 were okay. The one thing that you will say is that they didn't tarnish the legacy at all. Yeah. They didn't they didn't really add to it, they didn't bring anything new, but they were they were perfectly fine.
0: Uh and then in to bring the story to a close, in an interview with the Guardian in September of 2019, John Squire confirmed that the band had dissolved. And for me, now we don't know whether the, that dissolution was acrimonious or or was amicable, but the reformation, the tours, even to an extent, the new material—it was—it was a really nice epitaph, and it—it it was the ending the band deserved.
1: Yeah, they they got to they got to sign off properly, as opposed to the having their their final performance being the 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 version that that performed at Reading, that they actually got to the, they got they actually got to see their crowd properly um playing they played pretty much most of the first album and good chunks of of the second album and they saw that they saw the love that that a huge number of music fans have for for their music and their legacy so obviously we do need to bring this to some form of conclusion. And on, the, on our last album, Clash, we, we did discuss some issues that come up involving the individuals involved with the records. Um, with both of these albums, we have um, some problematic things uh, said and espoused by individuals involved in the record. But you have done some, well, not in-depth research, you've gone on Ian Brown's Twitter.
0: Please please, please yeah.
1: inform the listeners.
0: So I'm just going to read some tweets from Ian Brown's very recent Twitter feed. So I'm just, I, so this is being recorded on the 19th of February, 2021. I'm only going to go as far back as the 27th of January, 2021. So you're, t- you're basically talking just over three weeks ago. And I'm not going to read everything. It's just it's a sample of Ian Brown's tweets. So from the 27th of January... The bat was put into your mind as part of the spell. A symbol for the devil-minded elite using poodle politicians to hold us hostage while they rearrange society, their poisons, your only path to freedom. Uh, moving on to the 29th of January. Masonic lockdown in your hometown in block capitals. Apart from the I in Masonic is in lowercase... I, I don't whether that's significant or not. I have no idea. Here we go from the 31st of January. In event 201, the simulation of a virus pandemic ran by the Bill Gates Foundation and World Economic Forum in Oct 19 were the trusted voices the celebrities used to push the agenda. Who will be the puppets from the world of entertainment and sport to do this in your age group? Uh, Another one from the same day, the 31st of January. If you think this is only about a virus, you're mad, crazy, you're crackers, nuts, mad as a ship's frog. That's not a thing. (laughs) But we'll forgive you because you're up against billionaire psychopaths and well-prepared propaganda, a well-oiled and slick machine many years in the making. Wake the fuck
1: up! Um, I I, I don't think we need to delve down that rabbit hole uh,
0: much more. I mean... So, Ian Brown... It would appear from his Twitter feed is a what is colloquially referred to as a COVID conspiracy theorist. He seems to believe that the virus is at least being exaggerated, that the vaccines are a form of control against the population and that it is all a ploy of government's to perform some sort of undescribed reset on on the world, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm baffled. I am more than a little perturbed, and I do not care to explore this any further.
1: <laughs> so, on his uh, last solo release, he has previous for for espousing these general um, conspiracy views. Which, if you if you want to listen to his last his last solo album, it's it's not it's not actually a bad album, but. He is very much in the conspiracy camp. I think that's all the
0: oxygen we need to give to it. Um, Yeah, I agree. Uh, So let's do best song, worst song then. So what's your favourite song off Second Coming? What's your least favourite song off Second Coming? So I would say my favourite song is probably, it's
1: quite obvious, but um, Love Spreads. It's a a great song. Although I give a, a very strong... Second place to Tightrope, I think it's a, I think it's an immense song. My least favourite song on the album is Breaking Into Heaven because it really tried my patience.
0: So, no disagreement from me. I think Love Spreads is the standout track on the album by a country mile. And uh, as much as I want to like Breaking Into Heaven because there's things to like on the track, as I said, the fact that it takes four and a half minutes to start, it, yeah, tries my patience so yeah we are in agreement on those uh so so that's that's the second coming um yeah and uh that'll just about wrap us up for for this week's show so um next week kevin will take us through the glory that is be here now and uh once again just to say thanks very much for listening and um kev just remind people how they can get in touch with us please so
1: if you are so inclined, you you can contact us via our Twitter account, which is at Clash Album. You could be like a millennial, you may like avocados and may choose to use an Instagram account. That's a Clash Album. Or if you if you are from the 90s, you may wish to send an email. So you can send you can contact us at albumclash at gmail.com. Again, for your suggestions for potential future album clashes or possibly your thoughts about avocados it's entirely entirely up to you what i will say is i'm not a fan of the avocado so (laughs) that's all that's all i've got to say about that i'm i'm very much pro avocado we're not doing vegetable clash although this this, (laughs) you know we we could potentially spin off (laughs) could do
0: (laughs) although i think avocado is technically a fruit
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, that, that would be a whole, a whole thing to get into. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, no, quite right. Okay, so yeah, uh, please uh, get in touch with us if you want to and um, leave a review, uh, subscribe to the show. Hopefully you're enjoying it. And uh, yeah, we will uh, see you uh, same bat time, same bat channel next week. Thanks very much. I've been Tim. I've been Kev. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Till right now, bye-bye. Cheers, bye.